Good morning. You can turn in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're in the third week of a new sermon series entitled Questions. And specifically, we're dealing with questions that are in the Bible, not questions about the Bible. We began in Genesis chapter 3 with the very first question found in the scripture, which came from the mouth of the serpent in his attempt to deceive Eve, which he was successful at, when he asked her, did God really say? And so he attacked the authority of God's word. He deceived her. She ate of the forbidden fruit. In the second week, we looked at the second question found in the Bible, which comes from the mouth of God when he asked Adam, where are you? Now, God wasn't seeking information, all right? In fact, when God asks you a question, he's not seeking information for his benefit. It's always for our benefit, always trying to get us to do a little bit of self-evaluation, self-examination. But he said, where are you and where was Adam? Well, Adam and Eve were hiding among the trees in the garden because they had sinned, and sin will always separate you from God. But the main thrust of that message was for us to evaluate ourselves spiritually and to determine where we're at. Because the question, where are you, can be answered answered numerous ways dealing with physical location. But it can also be answered numerous ways without dealing with a physical location at all. And so if God asks you, where are you? And he's not asking for your physical location, then how would you answer him? Today, we're going to take a look at the third question in the Bible. And remember, I've told you there are an estimated 3,300 questions in the scriptures. And just because I'm going in order from one to two to three, don't get the idea I'm going to preach on them all. Because as I've told you, to do that, I'd be 128 years old by the time we finished. And that's just not realistic. So, But I do want to camp out this morning on the third question in Scripture, again coming from the mouth of God, when he asked Adam, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? So in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 9, we find these words. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So try to imagine the scene once again. There in the Garden of Eden, God comes into the garden in some way. They had been used to having this close fellowship with God in the garden, but now they've sinned. They've eaten of that forbidden fruit. They realize they're naked. And then they hear God call out to them, where are you? But there's no answer. God calls again, where are you? Still no answer. He calls a third time. Now, and again, I, I'm, this is my sanctified imagination here, as Lee Carter Maynard would say. And just try to imagine that. The third time, where are you? And finally there's this 
quiet little timid voice that comes from behind a bush that says, I'm over here. Well, come on out so we can talk. I want to see you. I can't. You can't. I, I, I can't. Well, why not? Are, are you injured? No. I, I'm naked. You ever wonder why God didn't say, yeah, <laughs> and you were naked yesterday, and the day before that, and the day before that, I, and you didn't hide then, I, I made you naked. What's wrong with naked? And you notice Adam didn't say, I, I'm ashamed, or I ate from the tree you told us not to eat from, or I'm guilty, I'm... I disobeyed. I, I, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'm naked. Now imagine God saying, Whoa, wait one minute here. Where did you hear about naked? I never said anything about being naked. I, I've never used that word. Where did you learn that word? Who told you that you were naked? Have you ever heard a little child use a word that they shouldn't be using? And you wonder, where did they hear that from? Who did they pick that up from? Now, let me tell you, in my driving a school bus for nearly 35 years, all right, I've heard little children, indeed preschoolers, and it seems like almost every day, but I hear them say things and I wonder, where did they get that from? Who have they been listening to to say that? And, and profanity included. And I'm thinking, who have they been around? What are these people saying that these little children are picking up on? And well, when God heard the word naked from Adam's mouth, he stopped him. And he asked, who told you that you were naked? And notice God didn't ask him, how did you learn that word? He asked specifically, who? Who told you that you were naked? Because there were only four possibilities. Only four people in the garden. And, and, and there was Adam, and he hadn't previously known or spoken of being naked. There was Eve, and she hadn't previously known or spoken of being naked. And God knew that it hadn't come from him, so who does that leave? The serpent, the devil, Satan. Now, this sermon today is not about the sin of Adam or the effect of that sin on mankind or the effect of that sin upon Adam and Eve. We've already dealt with that. This sermon is about naked. So when people ask you this week, what did your preacher preach about? <laughs> You can tell them, well, he preached on nudity. He preached about being naked. You tell them that, we'll have a bigger crowd next Sunday, all right? So. Now, why am I focusing on the question, who told you that you were naked? Well, hopefully for the same reason God did. God knew that Adam and Eve had disobeyed. He already knew that, that they had sinned and were ashamed and felt guilty. But God didn't focus on the sin first. He focused on naked. Why? Well, I think it was because that was the most dangerous problem. 
And I know that most would say that Adam's sin was the most dangerous problem because that's a matter of life and death that has eternal consequences to it, and that's true. But God already had a cure for sin. Already had a cure. Before God ever created Adam and Eve, Jesus was already scheduled to die on the cross. You see, that was planned from the foundation of the world before he ever created. The sin problem would be fixed. But God heard something that concerned him very much, I think. He heard Adam say, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. There's no way that you could forgive me after what I've done. I have no value. I'm a sinner. I'm not worth anything. I, I don't matter. A preacher by the name of Rick Pendleton states the following in a sermon that he preached, and I want to quote him. He says, there's a very important conversation that is omitted from the Bible between verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3. Not really, but he's imagining, all right. Allow me to tell you about it. It's not found in your Bible, but let me read it to you from the Pendleton version. <laughs> Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the serpent came to Adam and Eve and gloated. You've done it now. What do you think your father will say now? Is he going to walk with you in the cool of the day anymore? Is he going to speak to you with kind words? No, he won't. He's going to cast you away as one casts those husks to the pigs. He's going to smite you and abuse you and cast you away from his sight. You're a sinner now. You're not worthy to stand before him. You've shown yourself to be weak and vulgar and worthless. You think God's going to continue to love you? No way. He'll go and find someone else to take your place. He'll find someone that's better than you, that's good and obedient, and he'll love them, not you. You're worthless. You're defiled. You aren't worthy to be loved or cared for. You're not good enough. You're not pure enough or desirable enough to be loved. If you were the last man and woman on earth, God wouldn't love you. You ought to just go away and hang your head and feel ashamed and wallow in your guilt. People will mark you for the sinner that you are. They'll laugh at you because you thought you were a Christian. You're not a Christian. You're a failure, a worm. You're lower than a worm. You're the dust on the sole of a worm. And God's going to shake you off like the dust on his sandals. How could you spit in God's eye like that? How could you be so weak, so utterly despicable and evil? You're toast. You're spiritually void. And you're naked. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. You know what Pendleton says? <laughs> Makes you think, doesn't it? 
Now, obviously, the Bible doesn't include that kind of a conversation, but is that what God heard? When Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, did God hear him say, I hid because I'm scum? I'm not worthy to be seen. I'm not worthy to be with you. I know you hate me. I know that you're going to do something terrible to me. There's no way you can forgive me after what I've done. There's no way you can love me anymore. The story is told about a father and his little girl. And whenever she got a boo-boo, she would always ask her daddy to put a Band-Aid on it. Most of the boo-boos didn't warn a Band-Aid. Most of them weren't even worthy to be called a boo-boo. But daddy loved the game, so he'd make a big deal over the boo-boo, kiss it, put a Band-Aid on it. It was usually the waste of a Band-Aid, but Band-Aids were cheap, and so it was their special time. It made him feel ten feet tall because she thought he could fix anything. But one day she got a scratch, and Daddy ran inside the house, got a Band-Aid. To his surprise, when he tried to put it on, she wouldn't take it. What's wrong, he asked. I don't want to wear that Band-Aid, she replied. Why not? You have a cut, and you need a Band-Aid, she said. I'll look silly. Now the dad knew that other than her sister and her mom, there was no one else at home. None of her friends were over. Cars weren't streaming past their house where they could see the little girl playing. In fact, their world was pretty empty at that moment. But for the first time that dad could remember, his little girl felt shame. She had discovered shame. Somehow, somewhere... That little five-year-old had learned to be afraid of looking silly. And the dad fought back tears as he realized that the special time was over. It would never again be the same. She was now more worried about what other people would think than about her special time with her daddy that could fix anything. And he felt like he had been robbed by some unknown robber that had broken into that special time and stolen away one of the sweetest and most precious things in his life. And so he asked his little girl, who told you that you were silly? What was he really asking? Who did this terrible thing? Who robbed you of your innocence? Who robbed me? And I wonder if that's how God felt on that day in the garden when he called to Adam and Adam didn't want to come and didn't want to enjoy their special time together. He, he didn't respond with innocence and purity. And the, the whole place, that whole relationship had been spoiled. It was gone. And it wasn't just the sin. And yes, the sin had spoiled the whole thing and messed everything up. But the real problem wasn't just the sin. It was the nakedness. Adam was feeling that he wasn't good enough, that he was damaged goods, that he wasn't worthy of God's love. The real problem is that it robbed Adam and God of that very special relationship they had previously had. It drove a wedge between them. It placed distance between them. Who told you that you were naked? Who did this? And the question that God asked Adam could still be asked today, right? Probably needs to be asked. Who told you that you, and you fill in the blank? Who told you? Who told you you weren't good enough? 
Who told you that God couldn't love you after what you've done? Who told you that you're beyond saving now? Who told you that you're not worthy? Who told you God doesn't love you? Let me tell you what the Bible says about that. God loves you so much he sent his son to die on a cross for you. That's how much he loves you. And yes, if you'd been the only person on the face of the earth, God would still have sent his son to die for you. He loves you that much. And that's how much God is willing to forgive you. And it's not based on how good you are. It's based on how good God is. It's based on his love. God's mercy, God's grace. And none of us are good enough to merit God's love and salvation. We're all in the same boat when it comes to goodness. What was it Isaiah the prophet wrote? All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. So the very best that we can be is still like a filthy rag to God. And yet he sacrificed his own son to save you. And there is nothing... Absolutely nothing you have done that he's not willing to forgive. That's how much God has done on his part to save you. But there is a response required on your part. Faith. Belief. You must believe Jesus Christ is the son of the living God that died to save you from your sins. And you must place your faith in him who bore your sins in his body and nailed him to the cross. You've got to believe that. You've got to put your faith in that Savior, in the Christ. And realizing your sins led him to the cross, there should be a sorrow within you for your sins, a godly sorrow that works repentance that leads to salvation. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Repentance is a change point in your life. Sin separates you from God, as we've already seen, and the more you sin, the further from God you are. But repentance is that turnaround point. It's the point where you decide you want to return to God. You want the relationship restored. You seek His forgiveness, and you change your mind, you change your life, and you change your direction, and you come back to God. Then comes confession, a statement of your faith in Jesus Christ. Peter said it this way in Matthew 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he was absolutely right. Are you willing to make such a confession of your faith in Jesus? Paul writes in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Then comes baptism. Immersion in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, Repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism by immersion That's the point where God does His cleansing work. It's not a work that you do. 
You don't do baptism. You don't baptize yourself. Someone else baptizes you. You submit to it. So it's not your work, but it's the point where God does His work, bringing you in contact with the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin. That's why He shed His blood. His blood was shed for the forgiveness, the remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's no remission. And there's nothing magic about the water. And I don't know why God told us to do it this way, but I do know that in Romans 6, Paul likens our immersion in water to a reenactment of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Christ died on the cross. In immersion, we're putting to death the person of sin. Christ was buried in a tomb. In immersion, you're buried in a tomb of water. Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. In immersion, you are raised up out of that tomb of water to walk in newness of life. So a brand new life that we have, starting completely over with every sin washed away by the blood of Jesus, your slate wiped clean. But let me also say this. Immersion means nothing if you haven't placed your faith in Christ. Immersion means nothing if you haven't repented of your sin. Immersion means nothing if you're not willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Baptism by immersion by itself doesn't save you. But once you've obeyed the gospel and you've had your sins washed away, then you live a life of faithfulness with Jesus as your Lord and the Scriptures as your guide. These Scriptures tell us that we are blessed, that we're chosen, we're holy, we're adopted sons and daughters, we are redeemed, we are alive with Christ, we're raised up with Christ, we are saved by His grace, we are His workmanship, and we have peace with God, we are reconciled to God, we are children of God, we are helped by God, there is no condemnation, we are justified, completely forgiven, tenderly loved, we're the temple of God, we're blameless, protected, hidden, and surrounded by God, we're saved. Amen? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you you weren't worthy? Who told you that you're not good enough? It's a lie. God loves you. He longs to forgive you. And he sent his son to save you. And you can leave here today saved. But the choice is yours. If you need to obey the gospel today and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do that. There is no sin that you've committed that he's not willing to forgive. There is no way you've placed yourself beyond the realm of his love and grace and mercy. But you have to be the one that responds. It's your choice. And we give you that opportunity right now to choose life to choose Jesus and if you'd like to do that you meet me right down front as we stand as we sing